I'm going to invite you, whether you're at home or here in the auditorium, to pull out a Bible if you have one with you and go to the book of Luke, um, Luke chapter 17. Uh, you might have an electronic copy, maybe you have a hard copy. I'd love for you to turn there. Um, while you're doing that, I'm just going to remind you that the parable that we're stepping into right now is the last parable in book three. So that means book four is available for you today. And book four is free, just like all the other ones were. They're on the table out there in the atrium area. You're going to want to pick one up when you leave this morning because book four begins next weekend. And we'll be doing 10 or 11 more parables out of that book. We've done most of them. We've done two-thirds of the parables now. There's 43 of them. And the remaining ones will be in book four, and we'll jump into that next weekend. So be sure and grab one of these books. Perhaps when you came in the door, you grabbed a set of the notes this morning. If not, feel free to get up during the service and get one. Or if you're at home watching, you can download these right now from the New Hope website and pick up some of the notes so you can follow along on this parable. That'll help you a lot this morning. Jesus is presenting this story that's designed to provoke you. And you're probably thinking right now, well, what's new with that? Because that's what every one of the parables has done so far, right? They're, they're very provoking. And this, this story in itself is going to provoke you to be reminded that we're unworthy. That's what actually comes out in the parable. He says we are unworthy servants or unworthy slaves. And you'll see that actual language used here this morning. This is definitely a parable for the maturing Christian, someone who knows where they're at and they're trying to grow in their walk with Christ and they want to know more about the Bible. And this is designed for you. In context, it's addressed to all followers of Christ. But you need to be reminded in his crosshairs in this parable, he has the first century leaders of Israel. He's focusing this on them because they're not just religious, they're obsessive in their religious behavior to the degree that they're trying to force their behavior on other people. They believe legitimately in their mind. They've, they've come to this conclusion that their righteousness that they have, they believe that it's earned before God, not given to them, but earned before God because of their good works. And they're teaching other people that. They believe that. You've seen in recent weeks that the Pharisees and the scribes are in the crowd. And they're there listening to the parables. Sometimes they're the target of Jesus' parables. But most times they're in the crowd listening to hear what he has to say. Why is he saying it? Who is he directing it towards? And this parable is no exception. They're frequently his target audience, although he doesn't name them this time. Let's jump into Luke chapter 17, and you'll see verse 1 is a setup to the actual parable. This isn't the parable. This is the beginning of it. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Verse 3, be on your guard. Now, just hit the pause button there for a second. The, the numbers that you see in your Bible, verses 1, verses 2, verses 3, those weren't there originally. Those were added by editors and writers, people who put the Scriptures together. So where verse 3 is at is kind of an unfortunate component in that it makes you think it's a new thought. But actually, it's a continuation of what he just said. You'll see that come out in just a minute. Verse 3, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times a day, saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. 
And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, here comes the parable, and I'm just going to take it on as a chunk, and then we'll come back and break it down, but just hear the parable. This is all set up to it. Here it comes in verse 7. Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. And when you first read that parable, you might think this this is seriously disconnected string of statements. This seems so random, so hard to put together. But can I assure you that Jesus' parables are not random. They're highly intentional, very focused. It just takes some background to understand what's going on here. The ancients actually called these a string of pearls because they're so beautiful. It was designed to provoke and to move people to reaction. So the core purpose in everything that he's just said to this point is in verse 3. If you look at your Bible right now and you see verse 3, it's going to say, be aware or be on the alert or be cautious, be on your guard. Well, it's a Greek phrase which means beware. Why insert that right in the middle? When Jesus uses that term, and he uses it many times when he's talking to people, frequently what he's doing is he's calling out false teaching. He specifically has the Pharisees and the scribes in the room, and he's speaking about the deadly influence of false teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. Let me give you an example of how Jesus is willing to call them out. Look with me on the screen at Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, 15, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves.'" Here's what's going on. The nation's leaders were producing sons of hell because of heresy, because of false teaching, and because of their hypocritical lives, saying one thing, doing another. So they've got these two components going on. Now, if there's one characteristic that identifies them as a group, and I think all false teachers would fit into this definition, it's the issue of pride. Pride is the dominant sin behind all other sin, and God hates sin with a capital H. God hates pride with a capital H, and pride is at the root of all sin. Watch what Scripture says here on the screen, Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Now, we're not talking about pride in your achievements. We're not talking about you getting an MBA and getting an award and, and the family applauding you saying, wow, that is really well done. We're not talking about you being on a bowling team and getting a trophy. That's achievements, having pride in your achievements. What we're talking about is attitude. He's talking about people who are proud of heart to the degree that they become actually arrogant. God hates that. So if we're talking about attitude at the very top of the list of things that God detests throughout the Bible is the issue of pride. When Lucifer was filled with pride and ascended and said, I will be as God, God, because of pride, threw him out of heaven. 
Lucifer used that same thing as Satan coming to Adam and Eve, played on the pride issue and told them they could be as God. That got them thrown out of the garden. It's no wonder that Lucifer then came to Jesus and tempted Jesus, trying to use the issue of pride. If you will just bow down and worship me, Jesus, I'll take you and exalt you over all the nations of the earth. The issue of pride, trying to play on that. But he wasn't successful in that. Biblically, when you think of pride, it's defined as putting yourself first, putting yourself in the preeminent position. So pride is the core of selfishness. Now, here's the difficulty for us in 2020. There's a great difficulty. The temptation is to look back on the Pharisees and the scribes and say, yeah, they were really inflated, very arrogant people, so full of pride. No wonder Jesus went after them. Here's the difficulty for you and I today. Instinctively, we don't know anything but putting ourselves first. It's built into us as toddlers. What two or three-year-old have you ever heard saying to their mother in the middle of the night, it's okay, mom, you just sleep in. I'll get back to you in the morning, right? Moms, you can identify with that. Dad, you can identify with that. We don't do that because we're selfish. It's at the core. See, we have to unlearn selfishness. Our parents have to teach us to put other people first. So that's a pretty difficult detach. That's pretty difficult to detach yourself from that thought, to remove those things from your life which are instinctive from your youth. So Jesus, the one who is God, who thought it not equality to be equal with God, surrendered that role and took on the form of a man, Philippians 2, and humbled himself. This one who humbled himself spends a lot of time teaching on humility and the issue of servanthood because humans need to hear it over and over and over again. God knows it's an issue with us. And while he's doing that, by the way, the disciples are arguing in the background about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's who we are. And God knows that about us. He knows that this is an issue because pride has such an influence on us it's an enormous focus of the things that Jesus puts all his efforts to undo. So you find Luke 17 being about the issue of humility. And it's set against the backdrop of the Pharisees who are anything but godly humble. They want to be exalted. Well, the Bible's really clear. If you want God to exalt you, you got to humble yourself. And it, it seems like a contradiction, but God says that's exactly how you get exalted. You humble yourself. What does that actually look like? Well, if you did grab the notes this morning when you came in, or perhaps you've got it on your, on your device right now electronically, you've downloaded it, or you're watching at home, you've done it that way. Let me just show you a couple things you'll see in your notes. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. Here's two ways that Jesus draws out a couple of the trademarks of what biblical humility looks like, and he's embedded them in verses 1 through 6. Let me show you what I mean. The first trademark is that humble people restrain themselves from offense. What do I mean by that? I'm not talking about the offense of the gospel. We're told that the gospel of Jesus Christ is an offense to people because it tells them that they're sinners and they need a savior. That's not what we're talking about here. This offense that we're talking about is asserting or demanding your own way. Let me show you how you see that. Look with me at verse one up on the screen of Luke chapter 17. 
He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. Now, you may be thinking right now, I don't see anything about humility in there. What's going on? Well, the Pharisees are notorious for constantly putting stumbling blocks in front of other people. They're hindering people on the midst of their spiritual journey. So Jesus has to call them out in Matthew 23 and say, you guys are making sons of hell. You're traveling across water and land, and you're trying to make proselytes. You're trying to make other people just like you. You're tripping them up because they're demanding that people see things their way. Humble people don't say, I demand you view the world my way. I'm going to beat you into submission until you do. And if you think that's not what the Pharisees did, you only have to think of Paul. Paul, before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, that's exactly what he was doing. Trying to beat people into submission, throwing them into prison, whipping them, putting them in chains so that they would see things through the lens of his eyes. And Jesus said, what you've done is you're producing sons of hell. Well, humble people also don't live hypocritical lives, setting really bad examples. That kind of life leaves no offense. It doesn't bring offense to the degree that it seduces other people into error. And this is what Jesus is going after here. So he comes with a really harsh warning in verse 2. Look with me at verse 2. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. A lot of people have been confused about that, thinking that he's talking about three and four and five-year-olds that are sitting on his lap. No, he's talking about believers who are new to the faith. Little ones are people who are not maturing, but they're working towards it. They're not there yet. So when he's speaking about that, he's talking about believers who might stumble because of false teaching. So he's speaking about false teaching, and here's why I take this so seriously. It is extremely dangerous to cause God's people to be tripped up through false teaching and through false living. I'm really cognizant personally as a teacher of God's word of James, when James said, let not many of you become teachers for you will incur a stricter judgment. That rests pretty heavy with me because I'm constantly mindful of that. Wow, I don't want that weight on me. Here's the way that the disciples are understanding this. Humble people understand they have a huge responsibility to the truth for the sake of others. That's why he breaks the chain of thought with this warning, be on your guard. Verse 3, be on your guard that you don't do that very thing that you see the Pharisees doing in which they're putting stumbling blocks in front of people, that they're tripping people up. That's why he breaks the train of thought there. Now, here's the second trademark of humility. Let's put this one up on the screen for you. Humble people are quick to forgive. So he says in his next statement, if someone sins against you, rebuke them. But if they repent, forgive them. Forgive them to the degree that you forgive them seven times a day, and then tomorrow starts all over again. You might have to do it all over again. Because humble people are merciful and humble people are gracious and this is absolutely contrary to the way that the Pharisees have been living. What have we seen with the Pharisees in the parables so far? They're the ones who stand back from the dinner table that Jesus has been at and say, what are you doing eating with sinners? Why are you with tax collectors? Do you know what those people are? They're anything but forgiving. They're anything but gracious. 
So if, if you're humble at the core, you're not going to be arrogant. You're not going to be demanding. You're going to be forgiving. Yeah, here's the problem for you and I. We're no different than them. The problem is it's hard to deny your sin nature. That thing that's in you since you've been a little baby, it's right there at the core. And so you can legitimately ask, who can live like that? Who can be that forgiving to forgive someone who offends them seven times a day? Who can be so humble that they're not demanding their own way? They're trying to teach people the way of Christ and the disciples get it. They get what Jesus is talking about and they clearly feel the weight of this huge responsibility. And so they're really honest about their weakness and they say to Jesus, increase our faith. We've got to be better at this because they don't want to be a stumbling block to keep people from getting into the kingdom of God. They know what he's talking about here. That would be a really great prayer. That, that prayer request they made, it, it's just three words for them, increase our faith. How about if you said it this way, God, would you just make me more humble? Now, I, I prayed that prayer. I prayed that prayer throughout the course of my life, not often enough, I think. God, would you increase my wisdom and increase my humility? I'm really good about asking God to increase my wisdom. I'm not so good about asking God to increase my humility. Because when we do that, we're afraid of what he's going to do back to us, right? We're like, oh, don't make it hurt. We want to be more humble. We want to be more Christ-like. But we don't necessarily want the things that go with it. So the disciples bury it down to three words saying, increase our faith. Would you make me more wise? Would you make me more humble? Well, Jesus understands their request. He actually agrees with their conclusion. And it's like him saying, to do what you're called to do, you do need more. So watch the next verse. Verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed... You would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. God's agreeing with them here. You're right. You do need greater faith. You need a greater measure than what you currently have. Now, remember, this is prior to the resurrection. Jesus hasn't been crucified. He hasn't been resurrected yet. So that means the Holy Spirit hasn't arrived to indwell believers. So they don't have the power of the Spirit that you have in you. And Jesus says back to them, if you have just a tiny amount, if you have just a little amount and you exercise it, you can have a powerful life. A tiny amount like what? Well, like a mustard seed, he says. Now think back to the parables that we've covered over the last couple of months. Mustard seed is what? So tiny. Barely see it like a grain of sand in your hand. And yet we discovered in the parables it becomes this 27-foot bush this huge tree. And Jesus is saying to them, if you've got this kind of seed that blossoms and grows and develops within you, amazing things can be done through you. And that could cause Christians to step back and say, well, what, like what? Like what kind of amazing things? We get stuck on the image of the mulberry tree being uprooted and flying through the sky and going over to the Mediterranean Sea. The disciples know that's not what he's talking about here. They understand he's not talking about moving trees to oceans. What's he just been going after? The issue of humility, being humble enough to lead people to the kingdom. His point is they've just said, would you increase our faith? And his response is, if you have faith in my power to do what is supernatural, 
to do what you can't do humanly in your own capacity. You will see amazing things that will be done through you. That's what he's saying here. New Hope, I'm just compelling you to entrust your lives to the power of God to work through you, even if you don't think you can live a humble enough life to lead other people into the kingdom, even if you don't think that you can express forgiveness enough to other people to lead people into the, other, into the kingdom. You, you're right on that issue. You can't in your own power, but you can in the power of God. You can express forgiveness. You can be humble enough through God's spirit working through you. He's just saying, let my power accomplish that through you. Uh, if you're already a believer, and I assume majority of you are, the, most of us picked up the cup and picked up the bread this morning, and you're listening at home, I assume you're a believer, you're dialed in, you're, you're listening to the things about church. If you already possess faith in some degree, let's just be honest with ourselves and ask this question. If we already have faith to some degree, do we need to increase that faith? Sure. If we're going to be honest, yeah. None of us has arrived. None of us are there yet. So we need our faith increased. How do I start then if I, if I want to do that? If I want to be like the disciples and, and I want to be that humble, but I need more of God to do that. Well, first of all, start here with John 14, 13. John 14, 13, you see it on the screen. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Why? So that the Father may be glorified. What does that mean? That means asking things according to the purposes and the will of God. Not like, <laughs> I really, really, really want the Spartans to have a winning season, okay? Is that in God's will? Or is it more in God's will that you would lead a humble life to lead other people into the kingdom? We're praying the difference between our will and God's will. So if you already possess faith, you want to start there. God, I, I want you to do things. He says, you, you ask things in my name, I will do them. Back that up with Ephesians 6.10. Be strong in the Lord. Look on the screen. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Not your might, but his capacity. The things that we're talking about here, church, these are the things of the Spirit. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit of the living God, whom Jesus promised is in you right now if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And he will work through you to the degree that he will accomplish amazing things. Ephesians 3.20, it says this, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power of the spirit that works within us. You got faith in seed form? You wanna see it explode? Just follow those, the logic of those three verses that we just talked about there. Now, where I'm going right now is going to feel like a really hard shift, and I just want you to bear with me. I promise you I'm still on track. It may just feel like I'm off track for a minute. Please hear me on this. At, at New Hope, we are not political, and I know immediately, like, your eyes are bugging out already. Like, you're looking like the 9 o'clock service. As soon as I use the word political, people are, <gasps> what's he going to say? Hear me on this. We're not political here at New Hope, but hear this. The eyes of the world are focused on our nation right now. They're wondering what's going to happen. What's going to happen on Tuesday? They're wondering how the outcomes are going to play out. Because many around the globe think that the results of this election will change the course of this world. For sure, they're thinking it's going to change how the United States functions. 
because most people believe that the course of our world is set by the policies in Washington. And here's the mindset that goes with that. The mindset is the influential policymakers are in Washington, D.C. Those people who are in Washington, we know that things are broken and those people can fix things that are broken. We need my guy or my gal in office. They will fix things if we just give them an opportunity. Now, I'd be the first to agree with you. We need godly people in government. God gave us government. It's a gift from him. He lifts up and he puts down. We need the right people in office, and we pray to that end that God would give us the right people. And while it's true that government policies can make your life more complex or less complex, government policies do not change things on an eternal scale. Government doesn't lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. It won't do it. So if we step back and say we're waiting for our government to get fixed so more people will become Christians, that's not going to happen. What Jesus is showing us that the real influencers in the kingdom, the real movers and shakers are you. You are the movers and shakers. You influence people for eternity. Policies just affect things here and now. And yeah, it can make things better. It can make things worse. But we have to be praying to the end that the disciples were praying to. They get it. They understand the weight of responsibility. And so they're indirectly saying, Who's humble enough to lead like that? Who can do that, Jesus, what you're calling us to? To lead in such a way that the truth changes lives for eternity? God, would you increase our faith? Make us better at this. And Jesus agrees with them. You need more. You need the power of the Spirit working through you. And that leads to this very short parable. All of this was set up to those last couple verses where he tells this simple parable. Go with me to that in verse 7. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? Let's keep going with this. Verse 8, we'll take it in a chunk. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourselves and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? Verse 9, he does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Which of you having a slave plowing? Now, he's playing on the imagery of the first century economy of Israel. He's talking about employment. And this is a way some employment opportunities were handled. When we hear slave, we tend to think of 1865 United States, people forced to be in chains. That's not the image that Jesus is using here. In the first century, one of the ways employment was handled was in servanthood or slavehood. And it was a choice by the individuals. Yes, there were nations that were conquered and people were brought into slavery under Rome. But in Israel, this is handled as a bond slave. Individuals would sell themselves into servitude. Here's the way it worked. There might be a debt that they had to repay. It could be a huge debt. It could be a small debt. A person could sell themselves to a contract holder for a year or two years or five years if they wanted to. In some cases, they even sold their children. And they would generate cash. And that cash would be used to pay off debts, and then they would work and work and work. And during that meantime, that slave would be cared for by the master. So the word that Jesus is actually using here is the word doulos, and doulos is a bond slave. It's the same term that Paul uses throughout the New Testament. 
What's unique about a bond slave is that a bond slave attaches, chooses to attach themselves to the master, the one who's over them. And in the meantime, while they're attached to them, they're cared for, they're fed, they're clothed. And it's not a bad thing in first century. It worked out well for both sides if it was handled appropriately. And ultimately, it was way better than being a day laborer. Day laborers would show up at the marketplace hoping that someone would hire them just for a day, but then they had to come back the next day and repeat the whole thing all over again. Lori and I saw this when we lived in Arizona, people who worked in the citrus crops. They would show up hoping somebody would drive by with a truck and they could jump in the back and they would be hired for a day, but they had to come back the next day and repeat the process all over again. Well, being a doulos is way better than being a day laborer. That's a person who's bound to the master. They're under contract. And when their time was up, they could move on if they wanted to. So Jesus presents this question. He says, which of you having a doulos would say to your doulos when he comes in, come on in, sit down and eat. I'll fix you a bag of popcorn. You've worked hard all day. Now, this servant is apparently an all-around handyman on the farm. He's one who not only takes care of the livestock, he also plows the fields. And he has another job responsibility, which is to prepare meals here. And Jesus is asking the question, now, which of you will say, thanks for putting in a hard day, sit down, put up your feet, I'll, I'll put together the meal, let me cook, and I'll serve you now. Well, their employment arrangement is very similar to ours today. They had job descriptions. And Adulos knew exactly what his job description was. He agreed to the contract when he sold himself into this arrangement. And he knew exactly what the job required. And so they would do the task. And what was required for a farmhand was to do the chores, taking care of all the animals, taking care of the field. And for this farmhand, apparently, according to Jesus' story, he also had the responsibility of the three o'clock meal. Three o'clock in the afternoon at the end of his work shift. His job is not over until he served the last meal to the owner of the estate. So everyone knows the answer to Jesus' question. Which of you are going to say, come on in and eat? Well, no one. No one would say to their doulos, you can do that. Everyone understands what his tasks are. It's what he signed on for. So Jesus goes this way, verse 8, Luke 17, but will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat? In other words, your job isn't done. And by the way, don't come in here serving my meal, smelling like you need a shower. Go take a bath first, put on some clean clothes, and then come in and serve me. Next verse, verse 8, and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you may eat and drink. Verse 9, he does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? Did you notice that all the questions that Jesus asked are rhetorical? And the reason they are is everybody knows the answers. That crowd sitting there, including the Pharisees and the scribes, they get it. They know the answers. No one's going to tell an employee, you can quit at 2 o'clock and go out the door. He's not a volunteer. He's doing what he's agreed to. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Bailey is a historian, and he writes on things like this. And he died, actually, in 2016. But let me show you this author's words on this point. Look with me on the screen. Certainly no one in any Middle Eastern audience could imagine any servant expecting special honor after fulfilling his duty. The master is not indebted to him for having plowed the field or guarded the sheep. We're not even dealing with harsh hours imposed by an unfeeling master. 
but rather the normal expectation of a relatively short day's chores. So with all that background information, Jesus brings it home with verse 10 and verse 11 for people living in 2020 who follow him and claim him as Lord and Savior. Verse 10, so you too, new hope, you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. I told you that in the Bible, doulos is an illustration, an imagery of a believer in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul uses it so much. We have a relationship with Jesus. We have willingly attached ourselves to Him. He paid a huge price for us. The price was His life on the cross. As the master that we're attached to, we're a bond slave attached willingly to our master because there was a price paid for us. We get it. We understand. And that's why Jesus is using the term doulos here. And he's saying to his followers, I know you're working hard. I know you're trying towards humility. I know you want to be quick in forgiving other people. I know that's what you're chasing after. But don't get blisters patting yourself on the back, trying to compliment yourself as though you deserve honor from God for that. You're doing what you signed on for. You're doing what you were called to. Because of this reason, I hope you would say amen to this. Humble followers of Jesus know that they know that they know that God is not in debt to us. We live under amazing grace. You just lifted the cup and the bread to be witness of that. Your sins were wiped out, past, present, future, because of what Jesus did for you. So we live with amazing grace. God doesn't owe us a debt. We know we're living under grace. So let me bring this home and put a bow tie on it for you. When you have done everything that you've been asked to do by Jesus, and I don't think any of us would raise our hands on that and say, I got that nailed. When, when you've done everything that we're supposed to, meaning just these three that we've talked about, when you model genuine humility, when we restrain ourselves and we don't demand our own way, when we express immediate forgiveness to someone who has wronged us and sinned against us again and again and again, we're not then worthy of some immediate reward from God as though God is now in debt to us. God extended amazing grace to us. We are unworthy servants. Our reward is waiting on the other side. There's a paycheck coming, but it's in eternity. And you get eternity, by the way. You get eternity with God. So we don't step back and saying, pay attention to me, look at me, which is exactly the opposite of the Pharisees. This is what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling for a life that's far from the kind the Pharisees were living, wanting people to pay attention to them, demanding their own way, being that unforgiving. Jesus says, no, be the opposite of that. Be different than that. I'm calling you to that lifestyle in your day, to personally, humbly submit your life to God's claim on you. And I think you would agree with me. You need God's capacity to do that, right? We need God's capacity because it goes way beyond our human ability. 
We're just like the disciples. And we would say, increase our faith. Help us with that. Well, to help you with that, I'm going to pray for you. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do in return. I'm going to ask, would you stand where you're seated at right now if you're able to? And I just want to pray a blessing over you as you take on this responsibility. So let's go to God. Let's pray and ask him to meet our need in this. Would you join me in that? If you're at home, bow your head too. Heavenly Father, we come before you having opened up your word. And we have deliberately and purposefully on this first Sunday in November set aside time to honor you. We've worshiped you through music, and we have lifted the cup, remembering what Jesus did, and we've witnessed. But Father, we've also heard your word, and we've heard your word clearly and plainly. I ask, God, that you would use it in our life so that we would indeed be living the kind of life that would draw other people into the kingdom. We don't want to repel people, Father. We want to draw them. We don't want to be a stumbling block. We want to be forgiving. And we recognize we're weak in this. So, Father, I, I come before you right now on behalf of our entire church asking that you would bless this request. And I want to do it before you, Father, biblically, the way that you compelled us to do it. So I lift up this body of believers before you. I lift up all those who are watching from home and those who are live in the auditorium, God, asking that you would put your blessing on us by this way. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or imagine, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever and ever. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Have a great week, New Hope Church.